0: Well, last week, our passage from 1 Peter detailed the devil and his work to tempt believers, against which we were called to stand firm in the faith, clinging to the truth. It's the best way to defeat someone who lies. It would have been good for me to include last week, given the topic, an excerpt from the Screw Tape Letters, but I didn't have time to fit it in, but not to worry because I have one for you today. You might be wondering, what are the Screwtape Letters? The the Screwtape Letters is a book published by C.S. Lewis in 1942. He wrote this in England during the height of World War II, although the book is not about World War II. The war shows up here and there in the book, but it's not about the war. What's it about? Well, it's actually not even a book. It's a collection of letters written from Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood, hence the title, The Screwtape Letters. But there's a catch. Because Screwtape and Wormwood are not people. They are demons. These 31 letters come from Screwtape, who is a senior demon in hell, to Wormwood, a junior tempter who is just getting his start. And through these letters, Screwtape guides Wormwood on his new assignment. And what is his new assignment? It is to guide a British man known only as the patient, away from the enemy, who is God, and toward, as Screwtape puts it, our father below, who is the devil. After the second letter, though, we learn that the patient converts to Christianity, and Wormwood is severely chastised for letting this happen. But their job is not done. Screwtape has much to tell the young Wormwood about tempting Christians. And the rest of the letters detail Screwtape's counsel and Wormwood's attempts at dragging the patient down and tempting him to abandon his newfound faith. So now you're all set up, I want to read you a little excerpt from letter number 6. I mentioned how World War II II was in the backdrop of these letters. In letter 6, the war breaks out in Europe. And we learn that the patient might have to go to war. And Screwtape instructs Wormwood to play on this fear. I'll read you to that at the beginning of letter number six. Quote, Screw tape writing to Wormwood. I'm delighted to hear that your patient's age and profession make it possible, but by no means certain, that he will be called up for military service. We want him to be in the maximum uncertainty, so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. There is nothing like suspense. And anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He, he's talking about God. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. End quote. And C.S. Lewis is, of course, writing this all as satire. We coming from the mouth of the demon. We are not to listen to Screw Tape. Obviously, just the opposite. But if you can read through the satire, it's a very astute observation coming from Screwtape. He, God, wants men to be concerned with what they do, whereas our business, the demons, is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. And this is very true. How do you react when suffering hits? When affliction hits, when you get some bad news, what if you had to go to war tomorrow? What if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? God does not want us to worry over such things, to become anxious, to grow fearful. These responses simply reflect a lack of trust in him. Rather, God wants us to face whatever comes by standing firm, by enduring, by resting in him. The real enemy, however, wants nothing more than to distract you from what matters, to take your mind and your thoughts, your eyes off of God, to put them on yourself and on your problems. But isn't that when you get into real spiritual trouble, when you take your eyes off of the Lord and you worry only about yourself? You start to worry, like Screwtape said, about what might happen to you, as if that were the most important thing in the universe. You become obsessed with the what-ifs. You're plagued by anxiety. Fear controls your life, and joy is lost. And when this happens, you become totally ineffective for God. And this is the great temptation of distraction. And the solution—it's it's very simple. Just do the opposite of whatever screw tape says. Don't grow anxious over your afflictions and your sufferings in life, and instead set your gaze on Christ. Remember God, and and just. Focus on your eternity with him. Don't get caught up with the things of this world, but look to the next. Isn't this what scripture says? Listen to this, Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Watch this, verse 2. Set your mind on the things above not on the things that are on the earth. Or like Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6. Remember this? He said, do not be worried about your life. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. But what does he say at the end? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And then, of course, as Rod mentioned the race this morning, there's Hebrews 12 1 and 2. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And now this morning, our closing passage in 1 Peter guides us in the same direction. Up. Up. In Peter's final thoughts, his words lift our minds up out of this world's troubles, out of the mundane, and sets them on God and on eternity. And he leaves us thinking about the things to come, the things above. Peter's final thoughts in this letter firmly fix our gaze on Christ, which is absolutely essential to running and finishing the Christian race. Now, speaking of that race, we've learned countless times throughout 1 Peter that this race can be full of suffering. Sometimes it can feel more like an obstacle course than a race. Afflictions and hardships and persecutions come our way in life, and there's no avoiding them sometimes. If you've been with us throughout 1 Peter, you know, you know well by now, that he has a lot to say about suffering. It's a major theme in his letter. He tells us about suffering, its reality, its purpose, its goal, how God even uses it to make you more like Christ. We've learned this lesson several times. We're not going to rehash it this morning. But there's another theme in First Peter. And we're at the end of the letter. We can reflect back on the whole thing now. There's another theme that always accompanies this theme of suffering. Do you know what it is? It's the theme of glory. <coughs> glory. You see, Peter knows all too well that suffering can be hazardous to your health, your spiritual health. If you're not prepared to deal with it, suffering can lead you into sin, into doubt. But sometimes, oftentimes, there's an even more subtle danger that comes with suffering. It is that of distraction. Suffering has a way of taking your eyes off of the finish line and putting them onto yourself, your problems. Now picture, you're running a marathon. You're going strong. You're halfway through. But then you get this terrible cramp in your left thigh. It feels like, Every muscle fiber in your leg is just clamped up, and it's, it's terribly painful. And when that happens, what happens next? You stop thinking about the finish line, about the prize, about the goal. You get distracted. You get consumed by your present affliction. And if that continues, if you don't refocus, what's going to happen next? Soon you will find yourself slowing down getting off track, even stopping the race altogether. Spiritual suffering can has a, have the same effect of taking your eyes off of Christ, which is a problem because that's going to slow you down. And this is why Peter always accompanies his theme of suffering with this theme of glory, the, the finish line. He's helping us fix our eyes back on where they need to be, our goal. He's writing to these persecuted Christians, encouraging them so that their suffering does not shipwreck their faith. And when suffering comes, you need to rightly respond, not by sinning, not by doubting, not by getting distracted, but by remaining holy, by trusting God, by enduring, and by keeping your eyes fixed on what you're living for on the goal of Christ. So all the time, all over the place, Peter tells us and reminds us of the glory to come. First comes the cross, but then the crown. First, humiliation, then exaltation. First, suffering, then glory. This was true for Christ. It's true for us as well. But just dwelling on this perfect glory prepared for us, it motivates us to endure. When you think of what's to come, you think of the goal line, you think of the prize, of glorification, being like Christ, being with Christ, it really helps you to, to push through the pain and to keep on marching, keep on running toward that that finish line. It keeps you on track. Keeps you on course. Now, all this being said, that's true, but lest you think too highly of yourself or too much of yourself, Peter actually weaves in a third theme in First Peter all the way through with these First 2, suffering, glory. But there's a third theme, that of grace. Grace. And in reality, although suffering and glory come up a little bit more, grace is what it's all about. You can't even run the race without grace. You can't even start. Who saved you? Who, who put you in the race to begin with? Who showed you the goal line? God did How? Just purely by his grace, his his favor, his love for you. But that's not all. Who gives you the power to run? Who gives you the energy? Who keeps you on track toward the finish line? God does. How? Just purely by grace, his unearned, undeserved favor. So I hope you see from, from the starting line to the finish line, it's all by God's grace. And if you look closely, if you have eyes to see you can watch Peter weave this in throughout 1 Peter. Suffering, glory, but ultimately, grace. When you get this, when you see how these three work together and relate to one another, what you have is a really deep and profound framework for understanding and living the Christian life. It is truly significant. And so far, I've done a lot of talking. I want to do some showing. And we come today to the end of 1 Peter, but before we get to the end, I want to take you back to the beginning. So take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. And before the end, let's be reminded of the beginning. 1 Peter chapter 1. I wonder if you noticed, if you saw it from the very beginning, how Peter tells us of this suffering, this glory, and this grace, and how they work together. Let's start off with how he begins the letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right away, Peter starts off with what God has done for us. It's what he's done for us, just by his grace, by his mercy. God has saved us. He has caused us to be born again. He's given us this imperishable inheritance. It's it's for you. It's reserved. It's got your name on it. Reserved in heaven for you. And we are just waiting for the outcome. The salvation of our souls. Look at verse 6. In this, this salvation, he says, You greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in what? In praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So here you have this this salvation. It's yours. It's certain. But for now in this life, Verse 6, what happens? Various trials. Suffering. Your life now is, is marked by suffering. God has a purpose in this to refine you. And ultimately this, this will give way to what? To glory. Mentioned several times here. In our suffering, Peter, he's still pointing us to, to the goal line, to the glory to come. Which, verse 9, we will obtain as the outcome of the That final salvation. Where does grace fit in? Look at verse 10. The next verse. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of of what? The grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. To follow. And notice here, even in the life of Christ, suffering came first. Suffering first, glory to follow. It's the same with us. And that glory though, that, that salvation, it's ours now and in the future. How? Just entirely by, by the grace that comes to you. Verse 11. So, so now here you are, you're in that phase of life marked by what? By suffering. None of us are in glory yet. So how are we to live now? How are we to run this race? How do we to ensure that we get to this this glory that's promised? Well, look at the next verse, verse 13. Therefore, notice that word, therefore, in light of this, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where's Peter Peter taking us here? He's taking us up. Don't let your sufferings in this life distract you from glory and from grace. You need to remember these. You need to fix your mind on these all the time, completely. And if you do, If you do this, how is this going to motivate you to live in the here and the now, in the meantime? Well, what's the next verse say? Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. You get it? Holiness. Right living, which pleases God, it's the ultimate outcome. It's the result of this heavenly mindedness, this hope that's fixed completely on, on what's to come. Now, I can't stress how fundamental and how foundational this is. Understanding this, understanding the right order of this, from start to finish, from everywhere in between, it's all by God's grace. We stand on God and his grace. This is how Peter started his letter to these suffering Christians. And as you can guess, this is how he's going to end his letter as well. Now, I've really labored this introduction on purpose for you because now, if you're tracking with me, you can so much more appreciate his conclusion, his final words. These are not meaningless parting words that he just throws out there. As he ends, rather, he's wrapping it up and driving home everything he's been saying about suffering and about glory, and about grace. So with that in mind, let's turn now to our our real passage for this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5. And let's read together verses 10 through 14. (coughs) Finishing it off in 1 Peter 5 verse 10, he says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. In this final passage, once again, Peter mentions suffering. And he mentions glory. But really, it's about grace. So to finish off 1 Peter now, let me show you three final thoughts on grace to encourage you for a little while. Three final thoughts on grace to encourage you for a little while. And the first of these final thoughts is this the God of grace. Number one, the God of grace, verses 10 and 11. You know, you might be wondering why I said three final thoughts on grace to encourage you for a little while. Well, that's from verse 10. Look there again. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, strengthen, or per- perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 10 marks a transition unto us and our suffering. And, and whatever the cause, you need to know, it's just for a little while. It's just for a little while. Peter said the same thing, the same word back in chapter 1, verse 6. Remember that? These various trials come upon you for how long? For a little while. It should be obvious, though, that when Peter says a little while, he's talking about our entire lives. Our entire lives is this little while. Our own experiences of suffering, they're not limited to our teenage years or our middle age years or our later years. We are open to suffering our entire lives. Yet Peter's not trying to disparage or belittle people who seriously suffer all life long. Don't, don't misunderstand him here. He's not trying to downplay the reality of of suffering, saying it's not a big deal. It's just a little while. It's not what he's saying. An angel and I knew a young couple several years ago. They got married, young, and two weeks after they got married, the wife got sick. She's was having some pain in her legs. She went to the hospital, and very quickly, she lost the ability to walk. And today... Still, she's in a wheelchair, hasn't walked since. To make matters worse, the doctors had zero explanation. They had no idea why this happened. It was a medical mystery. They just had no idea. Just imagine that for the husband and the wife, both now facing a a potentially lifelong trial, suffering. Picture that. You're married for two weeks. Then your spouse becomes a a paraplegic for life, and there's no known explanation People all over the world genuinely suffer hardship like this and more in countless ways for countless years. Peter's not belittling them by saying that our suffering is just for a little while. He's not saying, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just a little while. Get over it. That's not what he's saying. It's just the opposite. He's encouraging them and comforting them in their very real suffering by giving them an eternal Perspective. And truly, this whole life is just a little while. This life, it's a flash in the pan. When compared to what? What does he compare this little while to in verse 10? To eternal glory. You see the contrast? A little while, eternal glory. It's all about perspective, is what he's saying. Did you ever get in trouble in school and sent to detention? I'm sure. I'm sure we got some people in here talking in class, causing trouble. I'm sure some of you in here are detention kings and queens right now, right? Well, pretend you get sent to detention for one hour after school. Is that a long time? Well, if you're sitting next to a person who's only in there for five minutes, one hour seems like forever. But if you're in there and you're sitting next to a person who has detention for a 100 hours, one hour is no problem. It's a piece of cake. It's a short while. You see the difference? You see the perspective? It's not a hard concept to grasp. When compared to eternity, your life is a very short while. And when you change your perspective and see things in your life in light of eternity, that changes everything. changes how you view your life and what happens to you. Even if you're having a genuinely hard time in life, thinking eternally gives you hope. Nothing is as hopeless for someone who is suffering than to know that this is It never gets better. This is as good as it gets forever. That's it. They're hopeless. Unbelievers are without hope like this. They have no hope, no hope of glory, because they don't have Christ, who is our hope. But not so for those in Christ. What does the Bible say? Romans 8, verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Suffering glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 17 and 18 he says for momentary light affliction, this is coming from Paul by the way who suffered way more than you and I for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Sounds a lot like First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see, in actuality, these are very comforting and encouraging words for those... Going through difficulty in life. And understand the real encouragement here. It's not rooted in you and in your strength, in, in your perseverance, in your striving. It's rooted in God and his grace. And that's the real encouragement. He is, after all, the God of all grace. Not just, not just a little grace, not just some grace. He's the God of all grace. Grace. Just in case you're not familiar with this concept, God's grace refers to it his totally free, unearned, undeserved favor toward you. Because of your sins, you deserve judgment. You deserve separation, you deserve hell. but by grace which you access through faith, He gives you redemption, forgiveness even heaven. And there's enough grace to go around. Like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Just overflowing. There's more than you could ever possibly need. It's there. It's there in Christ. You already have it. And this verse here in 1 Peter, verse 10, it's not really about you. You might think it is, he says, after you have suffered for a little while, but it's not really about you. The verse is about God. See, the word order in the Greek tells a different story. God comes first and last, receiving the emphasis. This verse is about God. It goes like this with the original word order. He says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is the real focus in this verse, and that's on purpose. Because Peter is trying to lift your thoughts up off of yourself and your momentary problems and onto God and his eternal glory. What is this eternal glory like? It's hard to describe it's hard to explain. Literally, it's hard to compare it. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, that there's really no comparison. It's far beyond all comparison, this eternal glory. That we don't have enough words or wide enough vocabulary to explain this glory. But I can tell you, it will involve Christ-likeness being made perfectly like Him. It will involve fellowship, this Perfect, unbroken fellowship between God and man forever, unhindered by sin. No more separation, complete reconciliation and peace. And it will involve this indescribable joy forever. And people think of of heaven, of glory, like sitting on a cloud, playing a harp. It's really boring. And that's just not what the Bible says. What does it say? we don't have the full picture, but we know it's indescribable and beyond all comparison. Full of joy. And certainly not boring. And clearly this is a glory we don't deserve. We don't belong there. We're sinners. We don't belong there. We don't belong in a place of of holiness like that. We're not holy. Yet the God of all grace did what? Verse 10. What did he do for us? He called us there. In Christ, He called us to himself. This is, it's not an invitation. This is a divine summons. It's a royal command. He's just basically snatching us and, and just drawing us there. He's bringing us there. This is God's effectual call and election. We're saved simply because he called us. We were lost. We were enemies. We were blind. We were deaf. But he spoke life and called us to himself. This call takes place in Christ, by virtue of Christ and our union with him. I mean, what do you really think? you really think you did all this by yourself? You earned glory by yourself. You're just going to show up on Judgment Day and you're just going to sail through because you're a really good person. You're, you're good enough. You'll make it. you really think that will happen? See, you and I, we can't stand for one second in the presence of God's just vicious holiness. He's just too holy too without sin for us who are so full of sin in our lives. Yet for those in Christ, by faith, God makes us stand. He's dealt away with the sin problem. He's made us holy. He makes us stand before him. God, in the end, says himself, himself will do what? At the end of verse 10. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you These are four terms, four pregnant words, filled with meaning, describing what God achieves for us. Overall, first, He perfects us. This refers to making whole, to setting right. Like a fisherman spends a lot of time mending his nets, trying to get them back to original state. God will mend us. He will perfect us far beyond. He will make us into what we ought to be, perfectly in the image of Christ. God also confirms strengthens, and establishes us. And these all have to do with our ability to stand before God. On our own, you, know, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance to stand before God. But God causes you to stand. He confirms, strengthens, and establishes you. One commentator, Hebert, says it best, quote, God will supply believers with the needed support so they will not topple and fall, In part, the needed strength, so that they will not collapse, and set them upon an immovable foundation, so that they will not be swept away. End quote. It's just this picture of this completely, totally firm foundation. The foundation is Christ, and God sets us there. And what can you say to all this? How can you respond? Really, nothing other than by worshiping and by praising. And that's what Peter does in verse 11. He says to him. Be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever seen those really weird Christians who, they're all joyful and, and praising God, even though they're, they're going through a hard time in life. They get some really bad news. They're going through a sickness. They're just really suffering. But they're going around worshiping and, and praising God. It's really weird. Strange people. But such a response of worship, that which is the right response, it only comes when you You rightly understand suffering. You rightly understand glory. And you rightly understand grace. And then you can worship. It all stems from the God of all grace. Are you a worshiper like this? Is your mind set on him? Or are you distracted? Where are your thoughts this morning, this week, this month? Where's your heart what are you going through? Going through a hard time? Have life's difficulties consumed you? Have they overtaken you? Have they slowed you down? Has your focus been taken off of God, off of his grace and the glory to come? And do you see how that's the problem in your life? That's the real problem you have. Of course, can't control what, what anyone does with these truths, what you do with these. But, but at least now you know. You can't start, you can't continue, you can't finish the race apart from God's grace. So do you know this? Do you take comfort in this? Do you find strength in this? And then do you worship God for this? It really, it really doesn't get much higher than this first final thought on grace, the God of grace. Well, we do want to finish, so we're going to move on to the second final thought. And these final words, we start with the God of grace. Secondly now, notice the messenger of grace. Verses 12 through 14, the messenger of grace. Look at verse 12. He continues on. He says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying, That this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. We're coming to a close now. Peter gives some parting words and greetings. And the love for the brethren really stands out here. Peter stands out here as a messenger of grace. But he's not alone. He's with someone. He says, verse 12, through Sylvanus. Our faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. You might be wondering, who's this guy? Who is Sylvanus? Well, Sylvanus is Silas. You remember Silas? He shows up in Acts, he shows up in Paul's epistles several times. Silas, whose Latin name was Sylvanus, traveled with Paul, and he linked up with him on the second missionary journey. He travels with Paul, he suffers with Paul. He is his companion, his fellow minister. Paul mentions him several times in his letters. Later in life, Silas goes to Rome and links up with Peter. And here he is with Peter. Peter actually says he's writing 1 Peter through Silvanus. What does that mean? That he's writing this letter through Silvanus. Well, here it most likely means two things. That Silvanus was both the deliverer and the scribe of 1 Peter. That he delivered the letter seems apparent from Peter regarding him as faithful. Whenever this term faithful is used in the New Testament of an individual, it always means they are being relied on for a mission, for a purpose, like delivering a letter. It seems very likely here that Sylvanus was the one to deliver this letter to all the churches scattered in Asia Minor. At the same time, many believe Sylvanus was the scribe or the secretary, or the word is called the amanuensis, of the letter, writing down the words as Peter spoke. It's like the one who transcribed it or dictated it. Paul Peter dictated Silvanus, wrote it down. It's actually very common. Paul wrote the book of Romans through a scribe named Tertius, mentioned in the last chapter there. In fact, many of his letters he wrote through a scribe. He jumped in at the very end, said, here's my own handwriting, like a little signature. It's a pretty common practice back then. Now, we can't really be decisive here, but it does seem possible, even likely, that Peter use Silvanus, both to write down these words and even to deliver the letter that we call 1 Peter. Either way, God is behind this and all scripture, ultimately communicating to us, using men like Peter as messengers, messengers of his grace. God's message through Peter for the church was one of of grace. Look at verse 12. He says, I have written to you briefly exhorting, and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He's referring to the core content of the entire letter, which is salvation. He exhorts and testifies and encourages and instructs all about salvation, salvation which is all about grace. Grace, it really is his theme of themes. Past salvation, where God called us to himself, was entirely of God's grace. Present salvation, where God leads us to Himself, is entirely of God's grace. And future salvation, where God will bring us to Himself, is entirely of God's grace. It, it's all there is. And what's the response then? For us, there's still a responsibility that God enables us to do. It is to stand firm. He says, stand firm in it, in the grace. He's saying this is a trustworthy message. You can, you can rely on this. You can believe in this. And then you can stand firm in this. Don't, don't stand firm in your own effort, and your own strength. That's not solid ground. Stand firm in this grace, this message of grace. Remember, to begin with, Peter's writing to these young believers. He's very concerned with their stability. These were turbulent times and the persecution they were enduring It's very destabilizing. Like we've seen many times, suffering can throw you into doubt. It can toss you into confusion. You don't know what to believe anymore, sometimes when you're going through trials. And that can lead you to spiritual shipwreck. Instead, the right response, it, it's so simple. All you have to do is not become more self-reliant. It's not to try harder just to clench your teeth and, and just bear through it. It's not the right response. It's ultimately just to stand firm in God's grace. Not your strength, in his strength. Just stand firm in this message of grace. That's why we're even here, standing on the solid rock of God. It's the only solid ground when the storms of life come. It's all there is. We have a couple more verses left. Look at verse 13. He's nearly done. He says, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does my son Mark. Here we see some farewell greetings, customary at the end of ancient letters. Here the church in Rome sends its greeting to the churches in Asia Minor. And yes, if you're wondering, that phrase, she who is in Babylon, does refer to the church in Rome, whom he literally calls, by the way, co-elect with the churches in Asia Minor. In the first century, the, the real city of Babylon was... Small, obscure, and there was no church there. No record that Peter ever went to the real Babylon. But he was in Rome, and like in the book of Revelation, Christians back then used the word Babylon as a code word for the church in Rome. Church history shows this as well. It's a fitting name, for in the Old Testament, Babylon was the center of the world's opposition to God's people. In the New Testament, none other than Rome. No wonder, though, why use a code word at all? Why why didn't Peter just say, the church in Rome greets you? Well, most likely, Peter did not want to endanger the Christians in Rome who were already feeling the heat from the government. Remember, back then, Christianity was was already being viewed as anti-government, which was far from the truth. And Christians were being used as scapegoats for all of the empire's problems. Not long after this letter, Nero would slaughter and, and martyr several Christians in Rome, burning them. Blaming them for the fire there. You remember that? Peter didn't want to add any fuel to this fire. Although he wasn't saying anything wrong. The government was already taking and abusing and using against Christians these letters. He wanted to protect them. There's also a brief greeting here from Peter's son, Mark. And no, this is not his physical son. This is his spiritual son. Most likely, Peter led Mark to salvation, much like Paul did with Timothy. But yes, this Mark is the writer of the Gospel of Mark, which really was, is considered Peter's Gospel because as church history tells us, Mark was not an apostle, but he was in Rome, and he was writing his letter based on the preaching of Peter. Peter was his, his voice in his ear, helping him write that Gospel. Mark, nonetheless, sends his greetings to these other churches as well. And then finally we have verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. And here we see the genuine love for one another that Christians had back then and should have today. In the ancient world, a a kiss on the cheek was a common expression of love and appreciation. Some cultures still do this today. The the Italians, the French still practice a a kiss of, of greeting. Family members still use the kiss. Parents kissing their children until about middle school. When no kid would be caught dead having their mom kiss them goodbye, right? But at its core, this holy kiss, as Paul called it, it was an outward expression of an inner heart attitude of brotherly love. Different cultures have different expressions of such love and respect, from the handshake to to bowing to the kiss. But what really matters here, it's not the form, it's the function. Christians should be filled with love for one another in Christ. And this should be expressed in many ways, in countless ways, our love for one another. Well, I said we would finish 1 Peter this morning, and I wasn't lying. We have one final thought remaining. Number three, the, the last final thought, the result of grace. The result of grace. Start with the God of grace, the messenger of grace. Lastly, the result of grace. The very last phrase in verse 14, peace, he says, peace be to you all who are in Christ. Here the final, the final, final words in 1 Peter are all about peace, which is the result of grace. Peter opened his letter, chapter 1, verse 2, on a note of grace and peace. And he ends his letter on a note of grace and peace. And peace. These are like two pillars upon which the whole household of the faith stands. But grace is primary. Grace is primary. There would be no peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, if it weren't for God's grace. Peace is the result, and it's a great result of God's grace. Let me read you a verse. I think the best verse on the subject. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 3. Just, just listen along. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Grace. Glory. The only thing is that for Paul, let talk about is suffering, which he does in the next verse, verse 3, he says, and not only this, we also exult in our tribulations. What do you know? A coincidence. Paul saying the same thing as Peter. Suffering. Glory. Grace. With the result being peace. It's the same thing. Peace with God. There's really nothing more valuable. There's no more valuable commodity in the world than peace with God. Some of you here this morning may still be at enmity with God, still enemies of God. But this is no fault of God's. Your sin makes you God's enemy, for he is perfectly holy. And God deals away with his enemies forever. His enemies don't stand at all before him. And if you persist in your sin and rebellion against him, you will never find peace, not in this life and not in the life to come. You will only know tribulation and suffering in this life and in the life to come. What can you do about this? Nothing. Nothing you can do, but God can and has done something about this. From God's end, he sent Christ, his son, to make peace between God and man by dying for sin, by dealing with the sin problem, removing the enmity that the source of division and conflict between God and man. Christ came and He bridges the two together, reconciling the two through the cross. And this bridge is open. Anyone can cross over. Bridge is open. It's right there, but you have to access it through faith in Christ. So, have you stopped following your sins and started following Christ? There's no peace outside of Christ. That's what Peter says. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. That's it. This peace is only for those in Christ. By the way, that's all Jesus had to leave behind. You know, that? he wasn't rich, didn't have any money, didn't have an inheritance, an estate to leave behind to his disciples. All he had to give them when he died was his peace. But like we said before, there's nothing more valuable. John 14, 27, right before he was crucified, he said to his disciples, Peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you, not, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And this is a fitting last word. Christ literally gets the last word in First Peter, and that's, that's so appropriate. We've been talking a lot about grace, which, which is amazing, but... There would be no grace if it were not for Christ and his work on the cross. That's why he is our Savior. He's our hope. He is our, our glory. He is our peace. And he is our grace. And we say to him be the glory forever. Pray with me. Lord God in heaven and our, our Savior Jesus Christ, you are, indeed our everything. This life is all about Grace, we stand on your grace, but, but even beyond that there is Christ who is our source of, of grace and favor before you, Lord. We confess our sins before you, we confess our separation. We know we are an unholy and unclean people, and apart from you, we have no hope of standing before you and will know no peace over our sin. Yet you came, you you died for us to remove that, that source of conflict. All we do now is worship, worship you for what you have done. We believe in you, we confess now our faith in you, and we seek to follow you forever. You've put us in this race, you've called us to run, you've called us to endure, but that all only comes by standing firm in your grace. Help us with this now. I pray for all here who are suffering, even now, Lord, there surely are countless trials that, that I don't even know about, that people are going through. Help them to rightly process and understand the suffering that comes. Help them to keep their eyes fixed on the glory that is to follow. And all the while, may, may they be directed and encouraged by the grace that we presently have, more than enough to endure, to live for you, to stand on. That's all there is for us now, to stand firm in your grace. Help us with this, and we lift up our lives to you. In your name we pray, amen.